Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by Joe Weisenthal, who is co-host of the Odd Lots podcast at Bloomberg. And we're going to be asking the big question, is capitalism melting down? Joe, first of all, I'd like to say to anyone listening, do listen. If you want to follow the crisis, the financial crisis that's that's sort of happening, listen to the Odd Lots podcast because it's absolutely brilliant. And secondly, Joe, you know from your previous appearances, you're a friend of the podcast, you know that I tend towards the gloomy, I think. <laughs> and I just would sort of start from this very gloomy perspective of saying, let's go back to 2008. Sure. And, you know, exceptional central bank or state government interventions in the financial markets. Yeah. Where that was sort of seen to be a rare fix that was necessary. But over the last 15 years, these massive interventions have been coming with increasing frequency. We saw perhaps the greatest intervention ever during the pandemic. And that was very, seems very important, reassured the, reassured the markets, reassured the world that everything could be okay. We're now seeing inflation not coming under control, central banks rising, uh, increasing interest rates, the Federal Reserve particularly, quite aggressively. And as a result of those high interest rates, Silicon Valley Bank has gone kaput and it has been rescued. The Federal Reserve has stepped in, the, the, the Biden administration has stepped in, and they are guaranteeing the deposits of everybody, essentially backstopping any risk. Yeah. And I know people, you know, think that moral hazard might be a sort of outdated concept, or some people do, but it does seem quite a serious major hazard, moral hazard. This is a very significant thing that, that's happened in yeah. the last few days. How gloomy should people be? You know, it's interesting, the moral hazard question, because if you're coming in to insure all depositors, right, think, let's think about it, you know, what you're essentially saying is, okay, well, depositors don't have to do much due diligence anymore on the banks that they deposited. But they don't really do that anyway. In fact, that's like the the thing is that they weren't doing it in the first place. And very few people who have deposits at any in any checking account anywhere actually like go through the bank's books and say, try like, oh, are they passing their stress test? No, it's like, does the bank have some ATMs close to me? Is it easy to set up a card? Is it, can I connect my bills to it? That's usually uh, how maybe they care about the interest rate it pays. So on that question, I would say that from that dimension, I would say, you know, there already no one is like think, taking these risks seriously in the first place. So maybe what it doesn't matter. What I would say the deeper question is, however, which is that if all deposits at banks are 100% guaranteed by the state, why do we have private retail banks at all? which I think is like the sort of like existential question here we have to be asking, if this is going to be a business where the state is de facto always guaranteeing these, why not just give everyone a checking account at the central bank, a checking account at the Fed or something like that, if essentially we're admitting that all banks are essentially public services already and that we only discover their public services once they have to be bailed out completely. To me, that is like the deeper question going forward is like, why do we let private individuals and executives and shareholders profit from a system in which ultimately 
public money bears the risk in a failure. So uh, you're suggesting that banks are effectively becoming a bit like utilities or something, where the the, yeah. the the there is an understanding that you have a you have a right to a banking system that works, yeah, and therefore it has to be secured, right? And then independent providers just come in the middle, and that's increasingly what's happening. Yeah, we can't accept you. Ha- you we can't accept like wide scale bank runs, and there's reason to think that when a major bank goes down, that the people at the next bank over, the next, the next diciest bank, are like, I'm going to move my money out of here because I just saw what happened at Silicon Valley Bank, and next thing you know, like all the money winds up at like Citigroup and Chase and J.P. Morgan, and we don't want to have in this country a financial system like that. We could. There's a debate to be had about whether uh, that debate could happen. We could say maybe we just have all the money in three banks. And in fact, that would resemble kind of what the banking uh, system is kind of like in Canada, where my understanding is there's basically six big banks. We don't nothing near the small and regional community banks on the scale of we have here. So you could have that. But I think like American politics, being as it is, is not willing to accept, oh, you just have a few national banks the re the, the community regional banking lobby in this country and probably for like deep populist history is sort of very much against extreme bank concentration so we like having these small banks mm-hmm. but if you so if you don't if you don't backstop one if you don't if you if then people are then that's what's going to happen they'll all eventually the run will just go through the system so i mean it was clearly on some level you have to do it you can't have people uh for the opera, uh, operation of the economy, but then it does raise some questions. Like, okay, once you do that, what is the what is the, how much can uh, anyone really get paid, and how much are we expecting bank CEOs to make providing this commodity service? And I guess the question is then, can we split up banking services? So, that by that I would mean you have maybe just very simple checking accounts to pay your bills, and uh, you know, pay your checks and stuff like that. And there's zero risk of anything. It's basically just a commodity service. And then for lending and other investing that banks do, they have to go out into the market and people have to actively put their money in lending accounts, money market, credit mutual funds, regular mutual funds, et cetera, to perform the sort of like investing lending side of what banks do. How much do you think a lot of the anxiety at the moment is due to the power of the word contagion? Yeah. Because it's a very frightening word. And of course, the financial system is frightening. It always is. Yeah. But obviously, there's a debate about the the risk of contagion from the collapse of SVP. But but essentially, any major major bank with, or even a small bank, if if, if it leads to a domino effect, can, you can claim that that has a risk of contagion for the whole sector, can you not? Yeah. So I would say it's like it's two things. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting and distinct. So during the financial crisis, it's like, what is the, What are the avenues of contagion during the financial crisis of 2008? One of the fears was, was that, OK, you would have this bank. It would discover that it had the so-called toxic assets, by which it was understood were these housing related, like quasi derivatives that were not as valuable as they had been marked. And the fear then is that if one bank starts selling their book of toxic assets, various mortgage related securities, that pushes down the price of these assets 
other banks have them in the books. That means they have to mark down the value of their assets. Suddenly, that's more banks becoming insolvent because they've just marked down their assets. Then that sells it further. There's the run. They have to liquidate their assets to satisfy their deposit holders. That presses it down even more. That pushes more banks into insolvency. And suddenly, the whole system is bust. That was the channel of contagion that people really understood it to be back then. Mm -hmm. This is different. Because the, the interesting thing with Silicon Valley Bank is it's not about the uh, asset quality at all. Yes, like they took some, maybe took some too much interest rate risk buying treasuries, et cetera, too long. That's not really what the story is. The story is that there was like a run on the bank, that suddenly people were pulling their money out. And so to the extent that that creates contagion, I would say it's much more psychological by which it's like, oh, well, I see my friend pulling money out of here. Oh, now there's rumors that people are pulling their money out of Bank B. And now there's rumors that people are pulling money out of Bank C. Just to be safe, I better pull out. And the run becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy like bank runs often do. But mm -hmm. it is a different mode of contagion than we understood it to be in 2008. And I'll just make one more point on this. You know, one of the interesting dimensions with Silicon Valley Bank is this high concentration of depositors that were businesses that had uninsured deposits, so people who have more than the $250,000 deposit insurance, and businesses all in the same industry, tech startups, and businesses all in the same industry that all had the same two or three investors. <laughs> and if the two or three investors in all these startups say folks like Peter Thiel, whom it's been reported told his portfolio companies to get out, then really the issue is, the, the, the real story is that not that the bank had particularly risky exposure on the asset side, it's that it had ex risky exposure on the depositor side, because in the end, it was basically like Peter Thiel and maybe Mark Andreessen or a few other words, only real depositors in, you know, in reality, because they, you, they could put out the word and say, get your money out of this bank and the bank is finished. It's, it's game over overnight. And I don't think the bank as a risk factor or the regulators examining the bank, they probably looked at the asset side or the assets like, oh, OK, we, this treasury is not great. But the risk that I think everyone missed and just was not engaged with was that they had this extremely concentrated, very flighty deposit pool that could leave with the whims of uh, two or three powerful individuals. So it's about whales. If, if the whales yeah, decide yeah. to escape, then... Uh, then which then raises another question, which is, what bank wants these deposits now? Because, okay, you think, typically speaking, every bank wants all deposits, right? Mm. But, you know, it's like, if again, if it's whale deposits, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon in stock trading in which uh, retail investors trade for cheaper commissions than professional investors. And the reason is that retail investors tend to be noisier. They tend to do things and they don't move in. They don't know as much. They tend to move in random directions. So they cancel each other out more. Hmm. So to service retail traders actually cheaper. Whereas if you're trading with professionals who maybe all flow in some direction, who are more likely to have an information edge, then you might charge them more. I think there could be an interesting analogy here where like, individual household deposits, you want as many of those because if you and I both join a bank, like maybe I'll leave the bank because I move cities or something like that or some other reason. And if a hundred of us like join a bank, like we're all going to either stay with it or leave it for different reasons. If a hundred companies join, uh, all become depositors of a bank and they're all in the same industry. So they all have ups and down fortunes at the same time. And they all have the same two investors who are all in the same WhatsApp groups telling them, hey, maybe this bank isn't great. 
you're really like those are those deposits may not just be not valuable; they may be toxic to you. Yes, but then you get into a situation where, and this is where the sort of populist anger kind of yeah. might start coming in: is is that people with enormous amounts of money are going to be secured, just as people with little amounts of money are going to be secured. And if the way you're talking, it sounds as though you know the the the, the large deposit part of the economy might become unworkable without massive government support because you know why are banks going to want to keep keep propping up these yeah, whales I, that could desert them at any time yeah i mean look like there there's a lot of idiosyncrasies with this bank if you could imagine that in after with the collapse of this bank those deposits probably will get spread out to multiple ones some may stay with some smaller regional banks other of the big national banks i would imagine will probably try to increase their franchise and footprint within the startup community probably because they view that as a, a money-making opportunity. But it really does show that like depositor risk is real. And it's not something that outside of like a handful of banking regulators was discussed much because after 2008, it was all on lending risk. The banks did a bad job lending, et cetera. Yeah. We see depositor risk as a, as, a, as a real vector and it's something that everyone is going to have to think about. Well, let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. It seems to me, and excuse my financial illiteracy here, but it seems to me that they they made this very bad decision of buying long-term yeah. government bonds. And when yeah. interest rates went up, that was a disaster for them. And they either didn't foresee or they just weren't thinking that when they, right. when they took on these bonds, that could happen. They were also encouraged, I think, by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was advising people, I think, to... Have I got this right? To to take out these bonds. Well, I would say there's two elements. So I would say it's one and a half. I wouldn't say what I would say two things, I guess. Their interest rate risk is always understood. They made a bad bet on interest rates. But any um, bank CIO or CFO, the people making these decisions, they understand that like the risk of interest rates rising is always going to be real. Like they don't say like, oh, the Fed said it's going to like, they're going to keep rates low. We were misled. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that like, you know, they did make a wrong way bet. It would appear on interest rates. There are some reasons, argue, though, you know, we just say it's like a bet and a bet implies that it's just like they sat down to a table. There are some structural reasons why they made this long term investment in treasuries. And I'll just go over a couple of them. So one is like a traditional bank has lending relationships with its clients, right? The clients buy homes, the clients buy cars, et cetera, or with the depositors. Silicon Valley Bank is a little different. It, I mean, like most of its uh, startup companies don't borrow that much money. Most of them are uh, are funded by venture equity. They don't have much reason to borrow in the first place. So the Silicon Valley Bank's customers, they were not natural players to lend to. They did do some lending. They did some startup lending. They did some mortgage lending to executives of startups, which is kind of interesting and maybe raises some conflicts of interest about founders who stuck with the bank because they had a personal banking relationship. But, but by and large, there's not a lot of lending you do to the startup community. So what happens is, 2021 comes around, you get this huge boom. VCs raise tons of money. VCs fund tons of money. They all go to the same bank because that bank has specific services that are geared towards startups. They're very good at banking startups. They understand startups' needs, payroll, things like that. It's their bread and butter. It's a high-touch, non-commodity franchise. They get all this cash. 
but they don't have natural they don't have natural borrowers of that cash because their uh, clients don't really use, need much borrowing. So, tre- so treasuries are sort of like a natural place to put it. It's also worth noting that because Silicon Valley Bank it's fairly high touch. It's sort of like a premium bank mm. that they didn't want to put the money in just like very short term T-bills short under the curve, which would have been less volatile and lost less money because they didn't need to like fund their operations because that's the service they provide. It's a it's a premium bank service. So it was not just a, a bet. I mean, it is in retrospect a bad bet on low rates, but there were some structural reasons. The one thing I will say to your point, though, about being encouraged is that it is true that banking law puts treasuries and I think government-backed, mortgage-backed securities, they have a very low risk weight or like a zero risk weight. So you are not penalized. You know, you don't, there are certain risks of credit that you would have to make for like a sum loan. You're, the expectation is you're always going to get back the um, the government bond is going to be paid. So there are some structural encouragements for the banks to buy treasuries, which may create these perverse situations. But, you know, uh, it was a bad interest rate, but they understood every bank CIO understands the risks. But part of it was because there may not have been many other great alternatives in terms of putting that money to work due to their lack of a natural borrowing base among their customers. Do you think perhaps the problem is that there is a relationship now between high finance and the government or the central bank in which it's understood that in a crisis, the central bank will come to your rescue and then yeah. when you're in a very when you're in a very good position as silicon valley bank was at the height of the 2021 with the sort of post pandemic boom in in silicon valley and so on that you almost give something back that you know you you you're investing back in the system that saved you yeah. is there a bit of that going on i mean i mean i think like the real i mean you know it's just i think the real thing is like we have not figured out a way out of this asymmetry, whereby implicitly much of finance is backstopped and governments find it intolerable to let it fail. You know, I'm like, I'm a little more sympathetic, you know, going back to like 2008, people talk about, oh, the government bailed out all the banks. Et it's not even like totally true. There are a lot of people who lost a lot of money in that crisis. There were a lot of executives who went broke. You know, the most famous bailed out bank was Citigroup. It's still to this day down over 90% from its pre-crisis levels. Like the equity in that company didn't go to zero, but it was de facto wiped out. AIG was famously uh, bailed out, one of the biggest, like half a trillion or more. Its shares fell 98% this year. It didn't go to zero, but it was a de facto wipeout. So, but, but by and large, it does not seem like we have figured out this asymmetry of entities that enjoy profits during the boom times and Silicon Valley Bank boomed a lot. Uh, and I'm sure there were many executives who made a lot of money and sold shares in 2021 and probably early 2022. And yet when they fail, the costs are socialized implicitly or explicitly. In this case, they're kind of like a mix of the two. The explicit side is that the other banks have to like put up more money, put post more fees to pay into an insurance fund. Um, there are, but the Fed is going to backstop the system more or less. And so uh, there, uh, at the end of the day, these losses will be sort of like born very spread out, whereas the gains during the boom times were concentrated. And is the Federal Reserve now dangerously powerful? Yeah. In that you have a, you know, a handful of unelected people essentially backstopping the entire economy and the entire economy yeah. is increasingly reliant on what they do and when they do it. 
Yeah. It's not great. You know, the, th- the thing is, <laughs> I, so I would say two things. I would say there's two elements. You know, the core mission that we think of the central bank in these days is managing growth and inflation or employment and inflation, the dual mandates, at least for the Federal Reserve. And the irony is that for all the power that the Fed supposedly has, they don't seem to be all that great at hitting their core goals of uh, economic management, right? Uh, We know that inflation is high right now. And despite the rapid rate rise of rate hikes, which everyone would have guessed would have taken care of it by now, inflation is still uh, quite elevated. So they don't seem to have the power to handle that. And then post great financial crisis, for years and years and years, we had elevated unemployment and they were missing their employment target and they did not seem to have the tools available to boost employment. So for all the talk about how powerful they are, the irony is that on the two sort of core things that we assigned the Fed to do, they seem to be weirdly impowerful. Now, where they have accumulated extraordinary power is in anything having to do with financial markets broadly and basically becoming the back implicit backstop of more and more aspects of finance aspects of finance that were understood to be risky are now presumed maybe to have some sort of like federal government guarantee that's lurking back there. So I think there is a subsidy there. And then the other big element, and you know, we see it a lot, and I think it's with the BOE too, but certainly with the Fed, is these fights over, well, should the, should the central bank have a climate mandate or should it be involved in some of these other questions that historically were definitely not considered central bank issues. And what I think is going on there is we just sort of accept that elected officials, at least in the United States, by and large, can never get anything done. And so people say, well, like, what is one entity in Washington, D.C. that appears to have some unilateral power, here appears to have some unilateral financial power? Can we put pressure on them to do something about X because we have no confidence that the political system can respond in an agile manner. And so what happens is the central bank gets involved in more and more and more things. The way I liken it to is like some sort of like heat sink or political sink, because we have so little uh, feeling that like elected officials actually like pass things in a timely manner. We try to wedge them into monetary policy because, well, at least the Fed is one entity that can move unilaterally. Yes. And I think you dared to suggest, I may, I may have got this wrong, but I think you dared to suggest on Twitter that this had avoided the culture war, I think, on Friday, did you? Yeah, no, well, it's, got, it's coming. It's com- I mean, it was inevitable you were going to be wrong on that, but it was a brave yeah, thing to say I, at the time. Yeah, so I do think, you know, I mentioned, like, we have, a, in the US, we have a really different banking system than, say, Canada, which I think is really just, like, five or six very big banks, and that's kind of it. There might be some smaller banks. In the US, we have some, like, very big banks. But we also have, like, tons and tons and tons of, regional and community and small town banks, etc. And I think that is like a sort of like sort of populist legacy of the United States. The fact that like there is probably this deep distrust across much of the United States for like big finance, etc. And I think that's like an old feeling. And so I think that helps explain the proliferation of small banks. The small bank lobby in the United States, the community bank lobby, is perceived to be extremely strong, mm-hmm. extremely influential in D.C. because every representative has some bank in their district that has an outsized role to play, outsized donations, et cetera, and the representative does not want to anger them. So for all the political power of the big banks, there's a wide perception that community banks are actually also extremely powerful in D.C. And I think people are going to look at this Silicon Valley bank thing and they're going to be like, well, do we have too many banks? And you could imagine, like, I don't know, like the Vox.com types. I don't know, like, what the equivalent is. 
but sort of these like wonky people who like, you know, read academic papers and they'll like publish, you know, you can imagine them publish something that's like America has 90, America needs to reduce the number of it banks it has by 90% according to this study because we're like overbanked or something like that. And then that will become the liberal position. And then the conservative position was like, you know, they want you to just bank with Jamie Dimon and all his like DEI initiatives that they have at JP Morgan. And it seems inevitable that that is going to become this sort of like culture war dimension to bank politics going forward. I mean, I don't think it's quite crystallized yet, but it's it's inevitable because everything becomes that these days. Well, and does the line start to blur between fiscal policy and monetary policy? Because you have the Biden administration, you know, throwing trillions uh, uh, yeah. the economy and a lot of it is with 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 provisions for racial equity or the environment or environmental concerns yeah. built in yeah and you know i think like too like and for good reason you know I, I think there's really good reasons but like in the last several years the federal reserve has become cognizant of the fact that say every time it causes a recession or every time unemployment goes up unemployment among african americans and Hispanic Americans goes up higher than white Americans. And so it's like it's something that it's become to incorporate. But I think to your broader point, yeah, like absolutely. Like, again, like all of these different things that people have one have an opinion on on either side, the Fed becomes a seat of lobbying for that. Whereas in the past, they might have had that fight in a more explicitly political location. Mm. And obviously now there's huge pressure on the Federal Reserve uh, not to carry on hiking up rates. They probably will have to cave given the level of worry and or or do you think they will not? That's the the big question. You know, I don't think it's clear. I mean, inflation is not anywhere near target yet. There's still a lot of work to do. So I think the assumption a week ago at this time would have been that they're going to like hike 50 basis points at its next meeting. Now there's some question about whether they're going to hike at all. They might choose to not hike at all and just signal, well, look, we just had a major bank failure in this country. Hopefully it's contained, but we really don't know what effect that's going to have on other things. So maybe we just wait. It could also be like, you know, it could be so maybe they want to assess the financial damage before they keep going. It's also possible that like we're seeing the lagged effect of the rate hikes that have already happened. And one of the things that economists always talk about is that, as a famous term, monetary policy works through long and variable lags. Maybe some of this damage that we're starting to see really is last year's rate hikes finally starting to eat their way into the real economy. In which case, if that's the case, then maybe we haven't yet fully felt the economic effects of the rate hike so far. Maybe they have more of a deflationary impulse than we've been giving them credit for. It just took time. And so it could be that uh, for multiple reasons that they decide to wait and see. But there, you're right. There is this tension that you could wind up in a scenario in which inflation is still too hot and you have a brewing financial crisis. And you want to spray all the liquidity you need at the burning building to put out the fire, which you have to do hmm. even before you haven't defeated inflation. That is not a I, I don't know what happens, but that is not a situation that any central banker wants to find themselves in. Well, I mean, could that be the problem that, you, that the the more the central banks fire at this, the, the more inflation they're causing? And that, in fact, when you, when the Federal Reserve steps in to backstop, things it effectively it effectively negates some of the deflationary yeah. impact of of rate hikes because 
essentially yeah. for, for big failures the the state will always step in so the so the the, the pressure yeah, i don't downward. think there's any doubt that like look how do how, you know there rate hikes and other anti-inflationary measures work through multiple channels but one of them is in theory like sort of like cooling the impulse to invest cooling the impulse to take risks etc which would likely have a cooling effect on the economy but i think to your point if you backstop a risk-taking entity and there's a perception that other risk-taking entities will be bailed out or something like that, then I think uh, on the margins that probably you could say that increases risk. In this case, you know, again, they were not doing the, it was not the loan side of the operation that really got them into trouble. Had they been going out, you know, maybe it'd be a little more clear cut on like, let's say they had been going out and making tons of loans to startup companies and those all failed in mass, then you'd say, okay, well, if you backstop then, then you're just encouraging more people to make loans. Because it was a deposit side flight, I don't know if the dynamic quite exists to the same degree. But, to, but the core idea that, yeah, the more confident people have in an intervention, then that is ultimately going to provide some sort of uh, inflationary uh, uh, tailwind. And Joe, I would like to ask you how the trillion dollar coin, the trillion dollar oh, yeah. federal coin, because I, I realized I had you on the podcast last time. We got to get we got to we got to deal with this bank bailout so we can get to what really matters. Yeah. But I feel like I'm worried that Silicon Valley Bank has put the coin off the news. But for real, the debt ceiling countdown, which I think was the last time we, we talked, you know, it's got it's getting closer and closer. Yes. And they're not making any progress on this because now this has totally derailed that whole conversation. But presumably the trillion dollar coin could help with this week's predicament can you just for listeners including me yeah uh can you explain take us through the trillion dollar coin? It, it probably wouldn't help this crisis so it's really an accounting it's an accounting mechanism that happens to take it's like it's like a mental exercise accounting mechanism that just so happens to take the form of a physical uh coin but so we have this very silly law in the u.s that we've talked about before the debt ceiling which caps the amount of public debt the government can have at any given time and every time we hit it uh, it has to be raised again and affirmed and renewed. Otherwise, the government's ability to borrow is impaired, and you could have a, a default because you can't roll over your debt, or you have you have to you fail to make domestic payments, etc. But there is a literal provision in the law that was inserted in the '90s by a former Mint director, Philip Deal, who is still alive and who still talks about it. And he got the coinage law rewritten, and the Treasury Secretary does have the legal right, pretty unambiguous, I think, in the law, to create a platinum coin of literally any denomination mm. at the Treasury's discretion. And according to Philip Deal, he says, yeah, absolutely. So if you were to have a debt ceiling impasse where you, the government needs to spend more money but lacks the authority to borrow further, then the solution that the internet has come up with, and I think it is a good solution, is for the, uh, Janet Yellen to declare that there's going to be a trillion dollar platinum coin in accordance with this uh, subsection K of U.S. Code 3112, deposit that coin at the Federal Reserve, which is the uh, government's fiscal authority. That's how it works in this country, where the Treasury has an account at the Fed from which it spends, which is kind of like us having a trekking account of any uh, bank, and then continues to spend the money that's been authorized by Congress, except now there's a trillion dollars in there. You know, that's the only thing I want to see happen before I die from a news perspective, is that one day the trillion dollar coin is minted. And every time a debt ceiling fight comes up, I hope it's like one time closer to when that's the ultimate solution. And um, would it make quantitative easing less 
of a problem. No, I don't think so. So this is the key thing. So people are like, well, okay, this is a, mil- a trillion dollars more. And I would argue that it really does not have the inflationary impulse that people think. Because ultimately, the reason we have inflation now or the reason inflation is a uh, thing is like, you know, there's this view that there is a certain amount of like real goods and services that the economy can produce at any given moment. And there's a certain amount of uh, demand for goods. And if demand is high and if dollars in the economy are high and supply is constrained, then the price goes up and you get inflation across the board. The thing is, is that the spending that this coin would facilitate, the government spending that this coin would facilitate is only spending that the Congress has already authorized. The Congress has already said this is the amount of dollars that we're willing to enter into the real economy to buy goods and services that we will pay for over the next year, over the next X period of time. So it doesn't really introduce any new money into the economy. That core supply demand equation in terms of how much dollars there are to buy things, how much goods there are to sell things, that's which sets the price. It doesn't really change the dynamic. It's really just like an accounting change of like how that money gets into the system. So from a sort of monetary QE perspective, I don't think it's as problematic as it might first appear the idea of like some silly Venezuela or Zimbabwe-like financial instrument. Well, finally, Joe, I'd like to ask you about crypto because I know it's a subject you're very interested in. In recent years, I think we could say years, or certainly months, crypto has been sort of following the markets to a certain extent, imitating the markets as a a high-risk thing. But what's quite interesting is in this Silicon Silicon Valley bank is, the last 24 hours, certainly it may have crashed in the last two hours and I just haven't noticed. No, it hasn't, yeah. But it, crypto, and Bitcoin in particular, is roaring. What yeah, do you, it's what interesting, do you think that isn't might it? Say? Even like, um, you know, the, the markets have bounced back, obviously, a little bit with the bailout, but it is roaring. And it does mean, you know, I don't want to like read too much into a couple of days, but I will, wait, look, I mean, I guess there's, what I would say is, by and large, Bitcoin and crypto overall has not really delivered on the promise, the financial promises of many of its advocates, which is like, oh, it's going to protect you from inflation. You know, we had the worst inflation ever last year or the worst inflation of four decades last year. And uh, uh, Bitcoin did terribly. So it didn't do well. There is a crypto has been pushed as a, oh, it's a portfolio diversifier. It'll do differently than the rest of your assets. It hasn't worked. But, you know, like one of the things about cryptocurrencies is it is a form of money, it is a form of digital money that can be held outside a trusted third-party uh, entity, like a bank or like a, like, a, like a fintech or something like that. So there is this, you know, that is the one thing that crypto definitely is. Bitcoin is like a form of money that does not exist at a bank. And so if you wanted to tell a story that Bitcoin is rallying because people want an asset that is not exposed to the banking system, you might have a couple of days worth of evidence. I don't know if, if it'll last or if it'll persist, this divergence. But you can certainly tell that story about the last few days, and it's something to watch. It could just be all the billions that have been withdrawn from Silicon Valley Bank. Quite yeah, a lot of it's gone it into. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Joe, it's always a pleasure yeah, having yeah. you on. I feel confident to write one of my bluffers' guides having spoken to you. So I love it. That's, that's, uh, that's the highest praise. I, I'm a big fan of everyone. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Joe. Uh, all the best. We, we may have to... Tune back in if the, the, the financial crisis intensifies. Anytime, anytime. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. 
If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.